Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher, and I'm in conversation with Patrick Holden, founder and CEO of the Sustainable Food Trust. Their mission is to work internationally to accelerate the transition towards more sustainable food and farming systems. So it was a perfect opportunity to really dig into some of the challenges and the practicalities of moving things forward to better health for ourselves and for nature within this hugely important context of our food supply. Patrick shares insights into what our diets would need to look like if we were to achieve a transition across the whole of the UK. We also talk about the problem of dishonest pricing in our food system and the political difficulties that come with that, along with why Patrick is feeling optimistic that things are ready to really move forward for the better. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation here, and I hope that you will too. Over the past month, I've also introduced two new formats to We Are Carbon. One is a more condensed video version of these conversations that includes a bit of animation and won't be found on the audio podcast. So you'll need to find the link in the description if you'd like to have a watch. These videos are designed to help you share the concepts that we explore with your friends and family who might be interested but don't really have the time for the full interviews. Alongside these, there are new storytelling episodes that I'm publishing here on the podcast. They take us on light-hearted journeys through some of our main topics so we can navigate this path between the way we've become accustomed to seeing the world and the mindset of regeneration. The first one of those was centred around soil. It's the previous episode here on the podcast. As I get into my flow with this new schedule, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you feel is working or what you'd like to have more of. Please feel free to reach out and let me know which versions you'll be following. Right, over to today's discussion, and I'll let Patrick introduce himself. My name is Patrick Holden. Um, I um speaking to you from our farm in West Wales, which is about 10 miles in from the coast and near to the town of Lampeter. Uh, it's about 300 acres and we milk a herd of Ayrshire cows, around 90 of them, and we turn all their milk into cheese on the farm. And we have been here about 50 years, just slightly more. I came as part of a back-to-the-land community in the early 70s. And uh, I've, during the time here, I've had a couple of day jobs. Well, I've done a few things outside, but my main day jobs have been working for the Soil Association, which I did for maybe 20 plus years, uh, during which time I was director between 1995 and 2010. But after 2010, I set up a new organization, the Sustainable Food Trust. Our mission is to accelerate the transition towards more sustainable food systems, working internationally and nationally and locally. And um, here we are. Probably more to say. Fantastic. And it's completely well aligned with, with what we're talking about today. Because, of course, sustainable food is such a huge, expansive topic. And we know that it's a puzzle piece within the issues that we have with climate, with biodiversity and with human health as well. And so I'd love to spend our time together just garnering some insights about what might that path look like if we're to do a widespread transition in our food system? Where do we need to focus and, and how do we take those steps forward? 
And to start this, looking at where we are today, such a huge majority of our food is coming off the shelves in very big supermarkets. And it is actually very convenient and there's a huge variety, a lot of choice for people. And it's remarkably low in cost when we, we, we sort of put everything into perspective. So we could say that that sounds like such an incredible achievement that we've made with society to, to have this access to food. And yet it is absolutely riddled with so many problems. And those problems are all the more difficult to, to solve, to, to, to pick through and, and to put into the right direction because we have this daily dependency on buying food. So I think I'd love to start with this question of why is this so-called cheap food not actually really all that cheap? Yeah, um, it's right that we should start by assuming it's a great story before we realise that it isn't a good story at all. And maybe at the very heart of it lies the dishonesty of food pricing, uh, because the apparently cheap food that most of us buy in supermarkets um, is not really cheap at all. Uh, if you price in the damage that it is causing uh, to nature, to loss of biodiversity, to climate change, um, and sadly, most sadly of all, uh, to damage to human health. But none of those costs, which economists call externalities, meaning sort of price impacts which aren't reflected on the label of the price that you pay for your food, um, the failure to incorporate those externalities in our food pricing, and worse than that, to kind of add insult to injury, uh, the of the farmers that are delivering more positive benefits um, in their farming systems, those so-called positive externalities are not reflected in the price we pay for our food either. So you've got a double problem and a completely dishonest uh, way of pricing food. And in a way, one way to look at it is that if you farm, or even just if you produce food at a garden, there's the kind of balance sheet of nature which you're managing, you know, so you have soil just in a, a bed where you grow vegetables and um, you have all the natural capital uh, that is you're looking after and then you produce food or you do whatever you do and then there's an impact on the soil, on the natural capital, on you, on your health, which is kind of part of natural capital because we're not separate from the world we live in, we are part of nature. And if you think of it in accounting terms, if you were running a business and you diminished your capital, say, you know, you, I don't know, you, the tractor got older or broke down or the, you know, the soil got less fertile in the case of the farm, you'd say, well, that's not, you can't say you make a profit if your capital goes down. But unfortunately, in agricultural accounting protocols, this impact of the farming practices on the balance sheet of nature and public health uh, isn't included. So you literally, you have a dishonest accounting system right at the heart of food pricing. And until and unless we address that, uh, a food which is causing damage to us and to the environment will appear cheaper than food which is actually doing good for both. 
Um, and food which comes from farming systems like mine, because we've been here 50 years, we've never used any pesticides or nitrogen fertilizer or anything like that. And we've been farming in harmony with nature. We employ quite a few people, all benefits to the public and to the planet. But none of those are reflected properly in the rewards we get from the marketplace or anywhere else. So that means that farming systems like mine are not attractive to most farmers. So what do they do? They just become kind of commodity slaves on a treadmill of industrial production because that way they can just about squeeze a living out of farming. And uh, so it goes on. And that's the kind of intervention that we've got to make if we're going to transform our food systems. And I've been at this a long time, like 40 years, and we haven't broken through. So this is kind of a mission. I mean, this is like I'm on the psychiatrist couch. And we've, we've failed so far. Sorry about that. We did our best. But hey, let's start now. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. It's such a big, big challenge. And this financial aspect, I, I find it really interesting because as you've just sort of highlighted some of the key differences, those inputs, the pesticides, the fertilizers, and surely to the farmer, they're an extra cost. If they choose to take the route of conventional practices of chemical inputs, that's an additional cost that they've got. So what is making up for that in terms of when the food is on the shelf, the farmer is actually being more supported using those inputs? Yeah, but even those inputs are, in, uh, are dishonestly priced. So if you buy a tonne of nitrogen fertiliser, I can't remember what the current cost is, but it went up to about £1,000 a tonne in the early stages of the Ukraine war. It's come down a bit now. But I think it. I think before Ukraine, it was as low as 200 or £250 a tonne if you shopped around. But that cost in no way reflects uh, the damage to the environment of manufacturing it because the manufacturing, the manufacturing of nitrogen fertilizer involves a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And then when you put it on the land, there are more emissions and it causes water pollution, which the water companies have to clean up. None of those externalities are costed into the price of a tonne of fertilizers. A bit like that with aviation fuel, by the way. We're all flying around as if nothing had happened now, at least not all of us, but some of us. And I've just been to COP, so I'm not immune from this. But, you know, a lot of when you go to an airport these days, it's as if it's just business as usual. And one of the reasons why it's so cheap to fly is because there's no tax on aviation fuel. If it was taxed according to the damage it did to climate change, then probably a lot of us would fly a lot less because we simply wouldn't be able to afford to. Whereas if you use nitrogen fertilizer as a conventional farmer, let's say it costs even £500 a tonne, if it does, um, the amount of extra crop yield you get, at least in the short term, is so great that it more than covers the cost of the uh, investment. And it's the same with pesticides. The true cost of pesticides is the destruction of nature and indeed the destruction of public health. But that doesn't appear on the price ticket and so on and so on. So really, we live in a world of topsy-turvy economics. And, you know, some people, I'm just about to go to the Oxford Real Farming Conference in January. And, you know, they're by, they're, we gather together all the people who um, are really radical kind of food transitioners. And many of them would like to abol abolish capitalism, which I think is, you know, 
fine for some, but not going to happen anytime soon. My suggestion is we simply make capitalism honest as a starting point and get the pricing that we pay for everything to reflect its true cost. And that is a, a, a term, true cost accounting, would mean a world where everything carries its proper price. Even if we achieve that, uh, the transition would be a lot easier. So if, you know, the cheap chicken, which you can still buy, I think, for about £3.50 or something like that in a big supermarket, was to carry its true cost, it would probably be £15, £20. And if you got the price kind of more equal between the organic chicken, which is proper chicken, produced in a real way without damage, compatible with the dishonestly priced so-called cheap chicken, which causes all this environmental damage and damage to our health, then I think that would make it a lot easier. But of course, that won't happen anytime soon because governments don't want to take action to make the polluter pay because it would put the price of food up and that would be politically unattractive. I mean, if there's an election in May or October, whenever it is, and, the, and you know, Keir Starmer was to say, well, if you vote Labour, the price of food is going to double. Well, it wouldn't really double. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't really double, but it would, I, he could say something like, I'm going to make the price of food honest. Um, and we go, oh, great, what will that, what will happen then? Well, the price of food will go up, and then he could say, but don't worry, even though the price of food will go up, the nutrition you get from it will nourish you with less food. You won't get obesity, diabetes, food intolerances, diseases of the immune system, cancers, and all these previously uncommon diseases, because the ingredients in the food won't cause those. So you will be healthier, we'll spend less on the NHS, and uh, the food you do eat will, will make you feel really good and there'll be much less waste and we'll eat differently. I mean, if we could get all that into Keir Starmer's mind, so far, haven't done that. That's okay. part of the failure of 40 years. But I mean, that is, that's what we've got to do. And the question is how we do that. And I think the answer is we have to get a nation of informed individuals. So this conversation between you and me is an important conversation because we are in kind of microcosm reflecting a transfer of information, which I think the public are now thirsty for, but haven't yet got. So I think it's really great that we're speaking, because I don't know how much background you have in agriculture or anything like that, but presumably, anyway, even if you have, you're just a normal citizen, as I am, asking the question, how can we make our way in this troubled world and make the food that we eat and the farming systems behind the food we eat better? Absolutely. Incredibly well said, because um, I have a little bit of uh, background in farming on a very, very small scale, but also a huge amount of conversations. And the conversations with people are um, where we where we recognise not just the importance of these topics, but how they're interconnected and spreading through all different aspects of our lives and the resilience of our economies and our food and our health and our planet so incredibly intertwined together that we just can't really ignore having these conversations anymore, I don't think. And so it's really, it's really interesting. My son, Harry, plays rugby. And I mean, I was never interested in rugby. If your son plays rugby, you have to get interested. So he was watching this programme a couple of days ago, the Scarlets, which is one of the Welsh sides, play the Georgians. And uh, the Scarlets, who used to be really a top rugby side in Wales, they were thrashed by the Georgians. And I couldn't help thinking, I wonder whether part of it was, if you looked what the Georgians ate, 
who come from this you know country where proper sustainable agriculture is more or less the norm i think for lots of complicated reasons partly just you know they haven't westernized the agriculture to the extent that we have uh, whereas if we look at what the scarts eat uh, and this is not to be disparaging they may all have fantastic organic diets but i suspect they probably don't and i reckon they just run out of energy you know these <laughs> georgians they were like magnificent strong right <laughs> you know this phrase you are what you eat which is so yes. profoundly true Brilliant. and then in the case of livestock products like ours you are what you eat ate think about yes. that <laughs> yes what your food ate if you have if you eat cheese and the milk that made that cheese and this will be the case if you buy cheese at the supermarket today comes from a cow that never got outside that was fed genetically modified soy and a load of nitrogen fertilized grass and a lot of other stuff and it wasn't all terrible and you know she was looked after by the farm not knocking the farmer but i mean the kind of farming system that is behind most of the milk that is produced today isn't very good and does that have any effect on the quality of the milk that she produces of course it does you know i mean cows like us are a reflection of what they eat and if we are processing food through an animal whether it's for meat or dairy products or anything else from a, a, a you know a livestock species it makes a difference and we have to we don't know the story behind our food which is the most shocking thing so if you go down to a supermarket and you buy food you can't really tell where it came from how it was produced even which country it came from these days and you don't know and you kind of accept that and mm -hmm. so we've got a generation of children that grow up not really knowing anything about the story behind their food except you know if you ask a very young child where milk comes from they'll say it comes from tesco's or something like that <laughs> and you can't blame society because you know we live in urban areas and we don't visit farms. I did visit farms. I grew up in London. I visited farms when I was young. That made a huge, it was a huge influence on me. But I think that we have to start there. We have to say, right, we have to make the story behind our food accessible to all people as they grow up. And then when we are grown up as well. And that is kind of big mission to get to Keir Starmer's attention or whoever it is going to be the next government. Doesn't matter really. I mean, I saw the Secretary of State, the new Secretary of State, Steve Barclay, last week in London, I, I got this email saying, oh, the new Secretary of State would like to see you. So, oh, that's, wow. that's impressive. So I better go. So I went to see him, he seemed a very nice chap. And I, you know, said what I thought government ought to do. And of course we both knew that he probably won't be in the post very long, but in a way it doesn't matter because what matters is if politicians start to feel the heat of informed public opinion. So back to this discussion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there is so much significance in that which you've just said about the the food giving you energy and that notable difference in, in the, the different way that the food is produced. And when we look at the way that people are dragging themselves through the day on caffeine or on stimulants, that in a way is kind of their solution to a poor diet, a poor nutrition, and the, the answer of having food that gives you vitality, it just sounds like a dream solution. And I think there's something in that health aspect, that nutritional aspect, that allows this story to be more engaging for people. That's absolutely true. And I think it's really interesting that, have you heard of Chris Van Tullican, 
who wrote this book called Ultra Processed People, which I recently read. Oh, no, read. that sounds fantastic. It's really interesting that he and another guy called Tim Spector, Professor Tim Spector, who's done the Zoe Project, both of those two individuals uh, have are starting to rate, make real inroads in public understanding about the story behind their food. And interestingly, they both are, have focused after the farm gate. So they've looked at what has happened to food after it leaves farms before it gets to the supermarket. And Chris Van Tulkenen in particular has focused on processing aids and these artificial flavorings, which are basically a whole load of chemicals which either preserve food longer than it should be preserved or mimic the flavors that used to be in our food which have been removed by chemical agriculture. And weirdly enough, there's a factory down the road from us at a place called Vellenbach, uh, which at Vellen means mill in Welsh, small mill. And now it's a, a huge factory for producing flavors for crisps and stuff like that. And it used to be the milk marketing board uh, place where the milk was turned into butter um, and all the dairy farms used to supply it until about 20 years ago. And then it basically was turned into this, it's called sentient. How ironic is that? It's a big flavoring factory. So these brilliant chemists now trick our taste buds into thinking we're getting nourishment from food which is depleted in trace elements and micronutrients. And that flavoring industry is a multi-billion pound industry because they have to do that uh, to persuade us to eat more of that sort of food then it's good for us. How weird is that? And what a topsy-turvy world we live in where we strip all the nutrients out of our food and all the goodness and we contaminate it with pesticides. And then we have to create chemicals to pretend it's okay when it isn't. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that if anybody heard that story, they'd say, well, why don't we treat the symptom, not the cause, and put the, flavor, the real flavor back into our food with proper agriculture. And yet, since the 1950s, which I can remember because I was a boy in the 1950s, we've, we've really transformed our agriculture and made it into a system of food production which is actually damaging public health and causing massively increased NHS treatment costs and yet nothing much is being done about it. Uh, and these conversations, because I'm very hopeful, I don't think it's a pessimistic conversation, I'm very hopeful that the tide is turning because so many millions of people are starting to ask awkward questions about the story behind their food. And Chris Van Tolken and Tim Spector are in the vanguard of that. Bless them. Fantastic. I'll make sure that we've got some links to, to the book and the references there. Ultra-processed people read that book. I learnt a lot. It's okay. scary. And it makes you think, where can I buy good food? Which is the right question. Yeah, we all need to be asking that. But um, it, it leads me to my next question, because how can we buy good food if we aren't producing enough good food? And at the heart of all of this is how the farmers are choosing to treat the soil, as to choosing to, to, to grow the food that we're consuming. I'd like to ask, in terms of the volume and the variety of food that we need to produce for this country, do you consider that going the sustainable option across all of farming, we would have enough to, to fill all of our needs? I think that is a really important question, and it's one that was preoccupying me and the members of my team. 
So we thought, well, since we can't easily answer the question, why, we, why don't we organise a report which we called Feeding Britain from the Ground Up, which is effectively a modelling exercise where we uh, allocated different farming systems, all of which were sustainable and regenerative, right across the UK, um, and calculated the changes in productivity, yield, and proportions of food, which would come from that system of farming were a political decision to be taken by the government or, you know, us all, that we would transform the whole of the UK to a properly sustainable food and farming system. And the results of that uh, study were quite surprising. Um, the headlines were that if we went proper regen and organic, etc., cetera, uh, yields of food would drop, particularly grain yields, cereal yields. In fact, they'd go down by half. But since half the grain we currently produce is fed to intensive livestock, that would be okay as long as we stopped eating intensively farmed animals. And that means a sustainable diet aligned with the productivity of the output of a sustainably farmed UK would have no more cheap industrial meat like chicken and pork and intensive dairy products from mega dairies, the cows that never get out, which I mentioned earlier lots of vegetables because it's really quite arbitrary how much vegetables you can produce because you could put, uh, for instance, in a seven-year rotation, which is the farming system which would have to replace the ones we've got at the moment if we want to go biologically based and not chemically based. You could slot in a crop of potatoes or carrots or cabbage or whatever you wanted to do. So really the amount of vegetables we could grow in this country is, uh, is, is easily aligned with sustainable farming principles but if you fast forward straight to the headline conclusions of the report and you ask the question well if we all went sustainable could we will we have enough to eat let's just make it simple the answer is yes we could maintain our current levels of national self-sufficiency in our staple foods but only if we changed our diets and aligned them with the productive capacity of those sustainable farming systems. So then the next question is, well, what would that diet look like? As I said, plenty of vegetables, plenty of in-season vegetables and fruits, because we can grow really good fruits, again, in season in this country, whether it's top fruit, apples and stuff like that, or raspberries and strawberries, but you wouldn't eat them all the year round. You'd eat them when they were, you know, in their most abundant at the right season. Plenty of grain products, because although we'd have less grain, we'd prioritise the grain for humans. And we'd still have chicken and pork, because they can eat arable byproducts and a surprising amount of grass, actually. But, and also food waste, if we treat it and make it safe, which the government banned, by the way, after the, uh, the BSE crisis. They banned the feeding of food waste to pigs, which is a stupid thing to do. They didn't think it through, but we can change that. Um, chicken would become an occasional treat as it was in the 50s and 60s when I was growing up. Once a month if you were lucky, it cost, you know, 12, 15 pounds, something like that, which is fine. It's an expensive meat. It should be expensive. And the staple meat, and this is the surprising thing, would be red meat, grew up from grass-fed and mainly grass-fed animals. And you can have lots of dairy products from mainly grass-fed dairy cows as well, as we know, because that's what we've got here. Although we do feed some organic grain to them, which we grow on our farm. So it's actually a, a wonderful diet. 
and um, health promoting. And I'm not sure where you are on the sort of plant based spectrum. But a lot of people think that if they're going to be climate friendly, they need to give up eating meat. Well, that is just not not true. Actually, it's slightly even the reverse of that that you need to eat the right kind of meat, the right meat from the sustainable farming systems that will replace the ones we've got at the moment. And that means no more cheap chicken, but a surprisingly large amount, not over large, but a significant amount of meat or dairy products from grass-based systems. And the reason for that is because if you go, say, to the arable east of England, and you ask an arable farmer well, what changes would you have to make if you wanted to switch to a biological farming system? At the moment, he or she is probably growing all arable crops every year, and there are no livestock in the system, except maybe the, there are livestock somewhere else that's being fed the grain that is being produced. The answer is you, that farm would have to change to a rotational system to give up chemicals, which would probably be 50-50 split between fertility building and then the, the running down of the fertility in maybe a seven or eight year cycle, during which time it, you'd have to have what's called a herbal lay, which is a mixture of grasses and chicory, um, plantain, um, sheep's parsley, burnet, all sorts of uh, yarrow, all sorts of lays with, uh, of plants which coexist with the grasses and the clovers, which are nitrogen fixing. And that mixture over about four or five years would rebuild the depleted fertility in the carbon stocks of the soil to a, a pre-chemical level. And that would suck a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil. And if all the farmers in the arable east of England and Scotland and even East Wales, who are currently all arable, switched to that system, and the farmers with permanent pasture, which is the areas like we are here, where there's a high rainfall and it's quite hilly, and you can't have just arable all the time, but they have permanent pasture. If we switch to what's called holistic grazing systems, the methane emission from the animals, the beef animals, the dairy cows, the sheep that would graze those pastures would more than be more than offset by the carbon gain from drawing down the CO2 from the atmosphere and put it back in the soils. Because that's the most usual criticism to what I'm just describing to you now. You say, well, it's all very well where I went to that, that system of farming that diet, but surely if you have all those cows and sheep um, belching methane into the atmosphere, that's bad for climate change. And the answer is no, it's not, because there's this, this uh, soil carbon offset. And it's that kind of granular discussion I'm rambling on a bit now, but basically you, we all need to know that. We need to become experts in the nature and the component parts of the farming systems which need to replace the ones we've got at the moment, which I think is completely fascinating. Because after all, we are intimately connected with farming three times a day when we eat food. And our microbiome is in microcosm, a reflection of the macrocosm of nature. So we are intimately connected with agriculture and we should reflect that in our understanding of the systems and the principles behind the farming systems that feed us. Yes, absolutely wonderful information there. Um, so clear and understandable and digestible. And it sounds like the um, the reference to the study that you've done isn't yet another thing that we should be sharing because um, it's it's exactly that kind of brainstorming as 
necessary to see where it all fits together. And it's so interesting, the conclusions. Yeah, feeding Britain from the ground up and the hidden costs of UK food, back to our conversation about the dishonesty of food pricing. Mm. So those two reports would put a lot more information into people uh, who want to know more about the story behind their food. But actually the real revelation I think is when you walk around a farm either physically ideally physically or virtually and so what we are doing the sustainable food trust and our, at our farm here in west wales we are developing our farm as an educational platform because we believe that the way to uh, achieve this national transition will be to empower the whole of the next generation and older people as well because old people matter um, because we, I mean, it's mostly far, quite old people who are farming the land, by the way. And so actually the knowledge transfer needs to go on in the farming community, amongst leaders and amongst the general public and amongst children. So if imagine a network of beacon farms throughout the whole of the UK and actually the world, all of which were places where people could come and learn about the story behind their food. And those stories were made accessible by farmers who understood how to communicate with normal people, not using jargon and not blinding them with difficult words and stuff like that. That could happen. And interestingly enough, there was a man who I met a few years ago who worked in the state of Andhra Pradesh in India. And he was asked by a government official if he could introduce an advisory service for that state because uh, he wanted the they wanted the farmers to farm in a more sustainable way. And he said, no, I won't do that. I'll find the best farms in the state, mostly smallholder farmers, and give them the knowledge and the resources to act as educational stages. And fast forward to today, and there are more than a million smallholder farmers who are farming virtually organically in the state of Andhra Pradesh. And he was just at COP28, where I was in Dubai, a remarkable man on a mission. And I believe that his simple solution to addressing climate change and um, restoring our food to how it used to be is exactly through that means uh, making farms inspirational places where people can visit and have a life-changing experience. It sounds amazing because it's so easy to grasp why that would work so clear and um, yeah connecting with the the issues but also the solution that people can recognize. Seeing is believing. Ask, exactly, exactly that. It's um, much more powerful than, uh, than than just dictating words all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to ask you briefly about your farm and what about the experience of farming helped you to to have those those moments that made you think we need to do things differently. And you set up the the Sustainable Food Trust as a farmer, experiencing the issues on the ground. Yeah, um, I, you know, it's, we're only a tiny organisation, really, and there's a massive uh, need for transformation at the moment. But we don't want to be a large delivery organisation. There's lots of other organisations out there, you know, hopefully, which can deliver the change. But we want to be a sort of catalyst and a planter of new thinking and new ideas and an influencer. And I hope that that's what we achieve, at least on a good day. And we have an aspiration maybe to produce more... Um, educational resources like short films and you know maybe animations I know you're a specialist in animation uh, which 
make these stories more accessible for people who don't have the chance to visit farms or haven't yet had the chance to visit farms. And I think that the idea of setting up the Sustainable Food Trust was linked to that. Um, how can we be a, ca a catalyst to uh, accelerate a trans transition that's trying to happen but not happening fast enough? And we thought, well, we need to work in three ways, top down, bottom up and in the middle. And the top down bit, which is what really took me to COP28, despite the carbon footprint of the flight, and it's a fascinating discussion, you know, is it, could, can anybody justify traveling anywhere these days? I mean, I don't want to be sort of hair shirt and fundamentalist about this. I think we all have to, in the end, be responsible for the consequences of our own actions. And so I'm freely saying, you know, I went out in a British Airways, whatever it was, came back in a big 380 at the back of the plane, mind you. And, you know, there's a big carbon footprint to that. But I think me going was important because by, uh, as a direct result of uh, the then Prince of Wales, now the King, setting up a thing called the Sustainable Markets Initiative. This is back in 2020 at Davos, the World Economic Forum, which I've also been to a couple of times. He basically, his proposition was, can we change our food and farming systems and all the other systems that are part of our world in the time available to avoid irreversible climate change? And his conclusion was, only if we involve the big businesses. And a lot of people are very, have very disparaging views about big businesses, and understandably so. But he said, no, because business acts faster than government. Government always reflect public opinion and follow. They never lead, whereas sometimes businesses can lead. So I was made the leader of one of the task forces, or my, rather not me, but me representing the Sustainable Food Trust, because one of the, our big projects is that we're measuring land use sustainability impacts because back to the question how would i recognize food that came from a truly sustainable farming system well the answer is it needs to be on the label and it isn't at the moment the, well the organic label is a good label but basically if you go shopping looking for good food it's hard to navigate it so we thought well if all farmers of the world smallholders large farmers everyone measured their land use sustainability and the impact on soil on nature and on social impacts every year using a harmonized framework then you could use that information to drive change because either the government could invest in farm farming systems and have those outcomes or you could go into your local supermarket and buy a food product with a high sustainability score so we've been at this about eight years now and because we've been at it a long time and uh, the king understood the importance or the prince as he was then understood the importance of measurement I was made heading heading up one of the 20 task forces. So as a result of that, I met all these individuals who are leading companies, banks, insurance companies, investment community, you name a task force for a particular industry, particular industry sector, it's there. And as a result, we've been having a big influence on some of these CEOs who are leading some of the world's biggest food companies. And I think back to my point about theory of change, top down, bottom up and, and in the middle, if we can in, uh, invest a better understanding amongst the leaders of these enormous businesses, and I'll give you an example of one, a guy called Noel Quinn, who's the chief executive of, of um, HSBC Bank, came and had lunch at our farm back in the summer. And you could clearly see he was influenced by it. He just walked around the fields and he said, something's going on here. Now, he's leading a mega bank 
who many people might think has been part of the problem. But he, like all these other CEOs, you know, they've got kids. They're not yes. they're not unaware of climate change, etc. They want to do something about it. So we can be an influence on their thinking. So that's the kind of that's not the only top down thing we're doing. I, mean, I went to see the new Secretary of State last week in London. We're also working, talking to people like you to try to and with our Beacon Farm stuff to educate the public to enable us all to act our, use our voting power and our consuming power to build a better world. But we're also acting in the middle, which is reports like Feeding Britain, Hidden Costs of UK Food. We're working on a report which is going to be published next year on the role of grazing livestock, because a lot of people have a bad view about grazing livestock, and we're going to sort of counter that. So that's the kind of theory of change made flesh in our agenda. That's fantastic. It's very thorough and uh, coming from all those directions, really interesting to hear the top-down stuff because I think that it's easy to overlook the significance of that because people think, well, it's inaccessible. It's it's not something that we can connect into, but clearly not the case. And also, you know, rightly, a lot of people are very sceptical. You know, is there a greenwash fest going on? Well, this project we're doing with measuring land use sustainability the global farm metric no if if we can make if we can make the impact of all those farming systems transparent in a sustainability score you can trust then that's the fantastic antidote to greenwash and then you know obviously i face this question sort of existentially am i selling out well i'm not you know i'm a i'm i'm a disruptor and a you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'd like to think I was a reasonably principled person and by not getting into bed with, but kind of getting to know these people in leadership positions, I'd like to think I can speak true to them without being rude to them and the relationship can survive. And that's what I tried to do. And interestingly enough, the um, agribusiness task force is led by a chap called Grant Reed. And he used to be the CEO of Mars, which is one of the world's biggest food companies. He's a Scot, actually. I've just been on a video conference call with him about half an hour ago, which is why I was a bit late for this discussion. (laughs) And, you know, he's a good man. I mean, has he been leading a company which has not exactly been perfect in terms of the impact on public health? Probably. Does that make him a bad man? No, absolutely not. He's a really interesting man. And uh, funnily enough, on the screensaver, he had a picture of the Kulin Mountains, which is the range of mountains on the Isle of Skye that I know very well that I traversed back in the 90s. And so uh, we made a little pact when I saw it on his screensaver that we'll have to traverse the Kulin Ridge together. So that's a very good example of the kind of friendships that I've made, which I think could be a positive influence for the future. Absolutely. And I think that really beautifully highlights that there aren't really bad guys within this. I mean, we, we could go into detail and say, well, yes, there are, but... There are bad guys, but, you for know... The most they, part, they... For the most part, people are just being human and we have developed an economy that is kind of on a treadmill and it's running around and it has to kind of keep, keep its pace, but there are people at the heart of it and people are always able to be connected. And if you give them an option and a... Um, you're, you're giving them this information that can then speak their language. That, that's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting point you make about are there, you know, bad guys? I mean, there clearly are, quote, mm. bad guys, mostly men, um, who seem to be in the grip of some evil forces. But 
was ever thus, wasn't it? I mean, you can see that there are dark forces that manifest in human beings uh, in the world today and always have been. And it's sort of Shakespearean, isn't it, really, that we're all yeah. grappling with these forces inside ourselves. And I think a lot turns on one's attitude when one meets these unfortunate dark forces, either in someone else or in oneself. And God knows, I mean, the war in Ukraine and the terrible conflict in Palestine, I mean, it's unbearable. Yeah. The inhumanity of human beings. And it's almost impossible to come to a settled understanding of how this could be. But somehow we have to include that in our field, do we not? We can't pretend the world is totally harmonious. And one thing is for sure, our food and farming systems have not been harmonious for the last century, at least. So if we are striving to make them better, you know, we can do what we can. But we somehow have to include in the field uh, the people who have historically been doing harm. Yes. Yeah, and the thing with these very large companies is if we acknowledge that they're not in a great place right now, even a little step in the right direction can be very, very impactful because of the size of the company. So the scale there. Yeah, um, and you don't want the best to be the enemy of the good, but on the other hand, you should strive for the best. So a very quick question in terms of if there was a farmer out there listening that wanted to, to make a change on their land and how they go about it, can you signpost them? Can you offer any advice? I think it's wonderful your suggestion of education at the farms themselves, but where are we, where are we at today? Well, there's, there's an amazing um, event called Groundswell, which a lot of the farmers probably viewing this would already know about which was set up by a man called John Cherry, Hertfordshire farmer, quite intensive. But he kind of realised that, you know, we needed to change our farming system. So he decided he'd make his farm an educational stage. And now there's kind of up to 10,000 farmers that make an annual pilgrimage to this place. And it's great because it's so inclusive. And I think you can learn a lot just by talking to farmers. Farmers will always be the best knowledge transmitters and so I would recommend going to Groundswell, maybe going to the Oxford Real Farming Conference. You can't go there physically now because it's booked out, but you can go there virtually. Join the Sustainable Food Trust, subscribe to the e-newsletter, it's free. We don't have a membership, but people can follow us on Instagram, um, read our e-newsletter and go to our website and learn more about what we're doing. Because I see us as being part of a kind of mycelial movement for change. And I think it's really interesting that guys like Merlin Sheldrake wrote this book called Entangled Life, which is really about how intelligent plants are in a sort of, and how they have relationships with fungal networks in their root zones. And isn't that just a metaphor for nature's intelligence? You know, it, you know we, we used to think, you know, people who spoke to plants were crazy. And now we realize that actually we're the crazy ones by not realizing that was always going on, if you know what I mean. Nothing's yeah, separate, everything's connected. So I think realize if you're a farmer who's been following a chemical route, understandably, because that's been the only way things have paid, that there is another route which you can transition to without too much pain with a lot of other farmers going on it as well who can help you. And I think that the, when I was part of the 
sort of leading part of the organic movement, which we are still farming organically. We're now the longest established organic dairy farm in Wales. Um, I think we unwittingly polarised the farming movement between those who were farming organically and those who weren't. And I, that wasn't intentional. It's just what happened. And I can see now with the benefit of hindsight that that was unfortunate. Yes, well, I suppose everything is a massive journey of learning and it never seems to end. But exactly. it has been so, so insightful to speak to you. I really appreciate it a great deal. And I'm sure that all of the listeners do as well. I think that um, there's a lot been shared here that people can learn from. Have you got any sort of final thoughts about, you've mentioned quite a number of times this idea that, well, we have this ambition, we're not really succeeding on it yet. But we've talked about a lot of hopeful things and there's a feeling of momentum, especially from that point of view of farmers um, teaching one another and sharing the knowledge. So do you feel that we're, we're on a good track to, to moving things forward? I do. I think how change happens is a bit of a mystery. And, you know, you could say, well, it looks pretty bleak at the moment because, you know, we're on this one and a half degree to three degree track, we don't do more to address climate change and there's a nature crisis and there's a crisis of public health and there's, God knows, there's a threatened migration crisis as we know because we're making so much of the land uninhabitable or drowned. And it all looks very scary, but I think that this idea that there could be a shift of consciousness, which, you know, few could predict the, the timing of, but does happen from time to time, I think is very much on the agenda at the moment. And, you know, whether it's, there's a sort of thing, you know, animals that know when the tsunami is coming or, you know, some sort of collective intuitive intelligence, which then changes behavior. I think we could be on the edge of something like that. And can we rule out the possibility that really dark things could be associated with our transition? No, we can't, but I mean, what can you do? You just have to, um, you know, the action is mine to be part of the solution. The results are not in our hands. So I think we should feel positive and do the right thing, learn about our food and the story behind it, and try to take modest but incremental actions to be part of the solution, both in terms of the food that we eat and also using our citizen power, voting power, that kind of thing, uh, to be part of the co-creation of the future that we need to build. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, it's been amazing. And best of luck with everything that you're continuing to work with. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me to talk to you. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. You can find more information in the description about everything that Patrick discussed with us. And alongside, there's extra details about the new format that I mentioned at the beginning from We Are Carbon. New episodes of the podcast are added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. And let's keep figuring this all out together. <laughs>